Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Tabletop Battlefield Live. My name is Jason, the creator of the Tabletop Battlefield, and I just realized my new intro there is about five seconds too short. It should probably fade completely to black so that I don't have to be, you know, catch me staring at my monitor over here, making sure it's getting clicked and right in transitions, blah, 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 things like that, because that wouldn't be good. Why is there nothing on my computer screen over here? Hmm, oh, that's different. Um... You know, it'd be nice if I could start a stream with this without any weird problems, but that's what happens when you kind of run something all by yourself. Let's hit refresh over here on my stream. Hey, there we go. Okay. All the information's back. Okay, so anyway, what I'm doing today... Oh, I mean, yep, we're good. We're good. Everything's sounding good. I think so. Let me check one more time. Yes, everything's sounding good. So I'm continuing on with painting Cypher, Lord of the Fallen, the miniature that was from the Triumphant of the Primarch about seven months ago at this point. Getting close to finishing him up. Most of the body here is done. There's still a few little details to deal with, and there's the gun. But for the most part, this piece is almost all done here. Today, I'm going to be working mostly on the backpack, which is he's carrying the sword of somebody, probably Lionel Johnson, as Games Workshop like to tease. Um, and if that is gets pretty far along, I'll probably jump on to his other little pistol. He's got the second pistol in his holster, because the other piece over here, his other cloak and arm, is pretty much done as well. Now, of course, I haven't been doing one of these live paintings in quite a while. It's been a few weeks. There's a good reason for that. And it involves this thing over here. <laughs> um, so what I've got here in front of me... Oh, I didn't get a picture of my costume. Anyway, the reason why I haven't done a live stream in a while is because for the past few weeks before, it's been leading up to Halloween here in the United States. And Halloween is a... Basically, for any kind of cosplayer, it's a big night because it's one of the few times you can walk out in normal public, in normal people land with some crazy costume on and people think it's awesome. Okay, to be honest with you, people normally think cosplay is really awesome and normally because people love when they have the Master Chief walking around, apparently. But long story short, um, so what I just held up there was part of my costume. And let me slide over to my secondary camera and we'll talk more about my costume in a moment here and kind of... I think that's probably what I'll talk about for the next 40 minutes or so as I'm painting. There's a lot of interesting little details I figured out about building it and integrating 3D printing, stilts because I'm standing really tall, a little bit of sewing, things that suck and things that don't, and all sorts of random little bits. Now, when it comes to painting Cypher here, I've got my wet palette as I usually do, and I'm using tonight a lot of green. So what I'm working on is the cover on the sword here, which is kind of like a Dark Angels type thing. So I'm starting it off with some greens. I've already got a layer of Caliban green down. I painted that at the very end of the last live stream. So I'm going to move on first to some Warpstone Glow. Warpstone Glow is kind of the next little bit brighter color of green in Games Workshop's Citadel line of paints, because their paints are designed such where you have a dark color, middle color, and highlight color. Warpstone Green is the middle color of the three sets of green there. So let me get a little bit of that down on my wet palette. And I'm really just going to kind of put some highlights on this little green. I don't know exactly what I would call it. It's kind of like a... It looks almost like a fabric covering of some sort. But I don't know. We'll see what happens. So my costume for Halloween this year, I made... 
a little bit of a different type of cosplay. You know, I, I'm a big fan of battle armor and things like that, but I didn't do that this time around. I left my Tal Fire Warrior cosplay at home, and I created my interpretation of what is probably my most favorite character from classical literature. I was the ghost of Christmas yet to come from Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. And I say my own modern interpretation because the Christmas Carol, for just very briefly, I'm not, I assume, you know, I, I could probably make the assumption that pretty much anyone in a Western audience knows the basic gist of the story, but I'm really not 100% sure on that. I really have no idea. It's by far the most retold story in history. Well, it's modern history anyway, I'm almost certain. There's so many versions of it out there. Almost many TV shows have done their own kind of versions of it. There's been a variety of different movies and different formats and, you know, tons of the theatrical performances. But the basic gist of the Chris of A Christmas Carol is it's a story of a old, rich man named Ebenezer Scrooge who's basically a real jerk. And on Christmas Eve, he is visited by a total of four ghosts, one being his former business partner, Jacob Marley, one being a ghost of Christmas past, which shows kind of the history of Christmas in his life to him, uh, one being a ghost of Christmas present, who takes him around the city and kind of shows what Christmas is that year. And then the last one is the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Now, in the actual original story... It's a, the character is a little bit different than how he's pictured today. Mainly what he does as the ghost of Christmas yet to, to come, he kind of shows prophetic visions of the future as to what might happen. Most famously, he shows Ebenezer Scrooge his tombstone, and basically shows him the tombstone the fact that no one really cares about him after he dies. Like I said, the, the main character is a real jerk. Um... <laughs> And he takes him to this abandoned, run-down, broken-down tombstone. And this is kind of like the main realization that Scrooge has, that he's just a horrible person. And, and of course, the happy ending is that he ends up changing his tune and becomes a much more generous person for however much longer he lives. But death is a focus of the ghost of Christmas future. Other than just showing Ebenezer Scrooge, Scrooge's own possible tombstone from the future, he shows... There's a character, uh, Tiny Tim, who's a sick little boy in the Ghost of Christmas Present. It shows him at the funeral of this, of this young child that, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge could have potentially saved if he's a little, if he's a little more generous. Um, there's also like a, a scene as to where the ghost takes him to show people reacting to his death, and they're kind of happy that he has died because of debt reasons and things. So there's, there's a big theme of death when it comes to the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And what I just did there on the model, as I'm kind of blabbering on, I put some a lot, few highlights of moot green. Moot green is the highlight color of that chain of green I was just talking about a moment ago. So I'm just putting a few more quick highlights on that. But back to the Christmas Carol is Charles Dickens had actual illustrations of the characters done way back in 1843 when the story was initially published. And the Ghost of Christmas Future was basically this guy in a black robe. You couldn't see his face, but he had very white, very pale hands, and he basically pointed to things. Because the ghost, 
does not talk. He merely just takes Scrooge around and shows him things and shows him where he's going and where, where they need to go and stuff like that. And because of this whole aspect of death being involved with this character so much over the years since then, the ghost of Christmas yet to come has kind of inherited a bit more of the modern Grim Reaper type look. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. So here's the Citadel Shade Nun Oil. I'm just going to... This is the non-gloss version, by the way. I'm just going to run a little bit of that in between the grooves on this fabric. Because this piece is in front of me here. What it is, what it looks like, is it's a groove fabric. So I just put the moot green and the, the raised portions of the fabric. Now I'm going to run and put a little bit of this Nun Oil down in the crevices, just to give a little bit of, of an evidence of some darker shadows. So whereas the original Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come from 1843 wasn't necessarily Grim Reaper, you know, it, it wasn't described as having a skeleton hand, skeleton parts, or a skull face, or anything like that. It's, it was described as basically being a human with incredibly pale skin, but all hidden under this cloak. The modern versions have him being full-on Grim Reaper. He has skeleton hands, much like the Grim Reaper has. Some interpretations, in particular the one that I'm most familiar with, he actually is carrying a scythe. I'm fairly certain the one I'm talking about is put on by a local theater company called Meadowbrook Theater. They're based on the campus of Oak University in Rochester Hills, Michigan. And they're famous for their production of A Christmas Carol. And in, I'm fairly certain... In their rendition, he's actually full-on Grim Reaper. Instead of having nothingness to his face, he actually has a skull face, he actually has the full scythe and all that thing going on. And in particular, he's really freaking tall. The actor who's playing that in the play is obviously standing on stilts. He's like seven, eight feet tall or something like that. And even though the ghost of Christmas got to come before, you know, previously was kind of described as being taller than Scrooge, this really helps kind of manifest that whole thing. So, when it came along to how I wanted to recreate the character, I wanted to keep the empty face look, and I wanted the whole full-on Grim Reaper thing, and importantly, I wanted to tower over people. Because that is part of the, the scariness, the intimidation factor of the Ghost of Christmas Future, is the fact that he can just tower over people, and it's just this emptiness is just scary and terrifying to look at. So let me talk more about how I did that in just a moment here. I'm going to start describing what I'm doing with the backpack. Because the backpack not only has a sword on it here, but also has you know the usual Space Marine-ish type backpack, a lot of mechanical things, looks like cooling vents, stuff like that. I am just going to give this a few layers of silver. So right now I have a base of Dawnstone Gray on it. And next up, I'm going to be putting on some lead belcher. This is actually still another base color, but this is a silvery color. And then, of course, my favorite color I love to talk about. We're going to move on to Stormhost Silver, which is a really bright color. And finally, once I got all three of those down, I'm going to go and bring out some of the details by taking some non-oil gloss version. So this is different than what I just used a moment ago. And I'm going to put that in the recesses to not only bring out like the, the details as the contrasting light and dark, but also just the gloss nature makes you really think that it is indeed metallic. So when it came to myself in creating the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come, there's two things I ended up actually doing to get that whole 
really towering over person look. Uh, I am about five foot eight, five foot nine tall, so I'm pretty much right smack dab in terms of average height for a a, a Western civilization male person. I'm pretty much pretty average in terms of height. So I wanted to make sure, one, that I was standing on stilts. This is kind of a bit of an adventure to figure out. Because I'm like, well, I kind of know what I'm doing, but I'm not 100% sure if this works. I almost tripped once walking in the costume, which would be a very bad thing. But the stilts themselves were made out of several 8 by one or 10 by ones or Yeah, they weren't... This is some pretty... You're pretty run-of-the-mill cheap boards from Home Depot... And they were built to be quite a little bit larger than my feet. So I'm thinking they, they probably measured about 14 inches long. And the main safety concern I actually had with them was rolling my ankles. Because if you came down a little bit wrong on them, it would be very easy to roll your ankles outward. And since my feet were attached via Velcro, I could see that being a very bad situation where you could potentially break your ankles. You know, I've talked, I'm sure, on the show before about when I snapped my ankle in half because I slipped on some ice, and the ice basically caused my ankle to bend at a 90-degree angle, which in turn was a horrific crunching noise, which, you know, if you ever wanted to know the sound that bones make when they break, it's crunch, not snap. Um, God, that sound was sickening. <laughs> but so that was the you know honestly the the main the main concern that I had when it came to wearing these stilts was that if the wood stuff kind of stepped on something funny angle, it's almost guaranteed to break your ankle. Now, it was very unlikely that I would roll my ankles inward just because the other stilt would be so close together that it would turn a little bit and the other stilt would block it. So it was mainly like I said more about rotating them, rolling them outward. And what I ended up doing is giving myself just a much larger footprint. So I was effectively standing on the very inside of the stilts. And they extended out, I want to say, about 12 inches. Because I remember they were a little bit wider than that. My entire foot base, I originally measured it to be about 27, 28 inches with these stilts on. Which I felt was just a little bit too wide. Because, um, you know... Your typical doors are anywhere from about 29 to 32 inches wide. And I didn't want to be walking along with a nice wooden boot on kicking in doors. That's a great way to kind of damage the door frames. So I know I cut down the width of the stilts to, you know, like I said, to about 12 inches each. But most of that extra spacing was then on the outside of the stilt, just so that it would significantly re reduce the chances and effectively make it almost impossible for me to roll my ankle outward. Now, if I was stepping on some weird item, that could be a problem. Like, you know, I, I practice kind of stepping on things and seeing what kind of balance I had. You, you do really have to be careful when you have any kind of stilts on if you're stepping on things because you don't have the fine control of your foot because your foot can articulate in all sorts of really cool ways if you ever really let it, um, i.e. get around, walk around barefoot. Um, <laughs> I'm a minimalist runner, by the way. I've mentioned that before, I think. So I'm one of those weirdos who wears those super thin running shoes and things. But, yeah, because you, in the stilts, you know, you're, you basically got a giant board. So if you even step on something that's an inch tall, it does, you do run the risk of even rolling the whole stilt and breaking your ankle and things like that. So that's part of the reason why I had that extra size to it. Actually, the main reason I had extra size to it. 
But the problem, other problem you ran into with designing, though, is that because the fact that I was not centered in the stilts and that, you know, I was in the inside of the stilts, with the straps that I had on, I just had Velcro straps that ran through the wood structure and back up to the top. So I had three straps to hold my feet in place. It would tend to cause the stilts to kind of do this. You can, if my hands were the stilts, they would start tilting outward like this, and my feet would be in this really awkward position. So I had to build some wooden supports around where my feet sat to keep the stilts from doing that. You know, another option that could be available that I didn't try to do because I didn't really want to spend, well, I just didn't really have the time to do it, would be to do things like get snowboard boots and snowboard bindings. I believe those really lock your feet into it, or certain other types of sports bindings like that can really lock your feet into a position. Hockey skates, you could kind of mount, somehow mount the boots of hockey skates down. Maybe some types of rollerblades can do it too. And that way, that would be a great way, well, I don't know if I'd say a great way, but that would be a different way to lock your feet into the stilts. I'm not sure if that would be better than what I did. I didn't try it, but that is another option that you could pursue if you wanted to build something like that. But the weird thing about this, this is still, it's because you're not really used to walking around with such heavy things in your feet, that it was a very interesting worked out, workout, because it used a, I guess a very not commonly used muscle in your legs, because <laughs> just lifting that heavy weight with each step, like I said, it kind of worked a weird, weird part of your quadriceps, and just really kind of... It was a different leg workout than what I'm used to with running or any kind of weightlifting activities and things like that. So it's kind of interesting just in that regard alone. Like, huh, this is something different. Okay. Well, let me go ahead now. I've got a couple layers of silver on the backpack here. I'm going to apply some shade of Nun Oil Gloss. And let's just bring out some of those details. But that the stilts are not the only way that I increased my height a little bit. Oh, I also should say... On the bottom of the stilts, I did glue on some of the floor mats that you know you build all the armor out of and that you actually can use as floor mats. My thought being that the floor mats are kind of designed designed to grip to the floor. So they shouldn't slip on things like on smooth surfaces like tile and things like that, where you know, a horrible worst case scenario would be that your wood that was on the bottom of the stilt that would just like slide when you're on a slippery surface, you'd be really screwed. <laughs> That'd be another great way to, you know, break your ankle. Actually, at one point, when I was walking around, I had to go down a bit of a ramp. I had one of my friends who was walking behind me. I'm like, you know, just, just walk close behind me as I go down this ramp in case I, I kind of like start to fall, grab me and pull me back up. Because, you know... As the whole thing walking down or walking on uneven terrain in these stilts is just dicey, or yeah, even not necessarily even uneven terrain, just walking around in non flat terrain was dicey with these stilts on, and that's what I was really concerned about. Um, so that, that was a big thing, but as the other thing that I did to increase my height was that I built the mask because, you know, I wanted to hide my face completely behind black material, so you kind of got that whole illusion that there was nobody in the mask or in the hood. 
I made that thing about six inches taller than my actual head. So the the entire head of the character, for lack of a better phrase, was much more elongated than a typical human. And it helped to kind of add another few inches of height to myself. So I want to say by the time this is all said and done with, I was probably about seven feet tall compared to my, you know, my normal little bit five foot eight. So I think it was it was definitely really cool. And if you see pictures, I got pictures of myself next to some of my uh, of coworkers and things. I'm towering over all of them, and it looks pretty freaking cool because that's what the ghost of Christmas got to come is supposed to be. And for the actual mask, because I didn't need to support any real weight, what I used was a Nerf, what are they, the Nerf Rival masks. So the Nerf Rival line are their kind of, quote, teenage-focused weapons. <laughs> Sorry, teenage-focused blasters. Nerfs are not weapons. I should know that. <laughs> they're not guns either. They're blasters. No, they're not. They're, they're, they're weapons and they're guns. I don't care. Um... <laughs> The rival ones are the Nerf weapons that shoot the little yellow balls. I never actually bought any of them yet, but they look kind of cool. They're kind of like halfway between your typical Nerf darts and Airsoft in terms of kind of where they fall and things. But for those that particular line of Nerf weapons, Nerf also produces some basic face masks. Kind of like, not quite what you get, say, with Paintball or Airsoft, because they don't need to take quite the beating those those do. But it looks very similar. It covers your eyes, your nose, your, your mouth, and your... And that's about... That's really about it. But it attaches on via headband. So the very simple way, if you want to modify that to carry some light weight... Or maybe even a little bit more weight. I'm not really sure how much you could push it. Like, you know, I've mentioned before, this costume that sits behind me here on my studio, the old the old Cool Special Forces helmet, the new one is going to start being printed pretty soon. The new one's going to be 3D printed. That's why it's, I just haven't got around to printing that one yet. But this one here actually has a either paintball or airsoft mask in it. I don't know which one it was. I bought it at a garage of a two bucks. And that's actually how it holds on to your head. So those kind of masks are a great way in terms of any type of cosplay. If you want to hold any kind of mask, helmet, things like that in your head without trying to build your own weird straps. Like I had to do with my Fire Warrior helmet. And that was just kind of a, a weird, screwy thing. But I will talk a little bit more about the costume here in a moment. What I'm going to do next is... I want to start... One second, I'm going to move my camera just a tiny bit, just to get a little bit closer to me. All right, there we go. That's better. What I want to do is I want to paint some of these pieces of the backpack here gold. This, this little rivety thing down here. Probably these not these cooling nozzles might make those gold. Probably these little pipes. And the gold process I like to use is a few different steps. So let me see here. We're going to end up, of course, here with Greedy Gold from the War Paints, uh, yeah, the Army Painted War Paints line. I think I will start with, yeah, we'll start with, I'm going to start a little bit with the Rhinox Hide. Rhinox Hide is a dark brown paint. It's one of the base paints from Citadel's paint line. And you can see it's just, it's just a very dark brown paint. And the reason when it comes to gold, why I like doing the dark browns, is it helps give a little bit of a tarnished look. So you don't paint the entire thing gold after you put the brown down. This way, you know, it gives it a little bit of a worn down look as if some of the luster of the gold has been lost. But being a Citadel base paint, you do want to thin it down quite a bit. 
And this whole time here, too, I should mention, I'm still using my Artificial Layer Extra Small Brush. Absolutely fantastic brushes. I, I absolutely love this particular brush. This is actually the second one I've had. My first one finally died on me after about seven months of pretty heavy painting. I don't know why. It just kind of all fell apart over at one point. So, I mean, brushes eventually wear out. I would have liked to thought I took better care of it, but maybe not. <laughs> but you can see here, I'm just putting the Rhinex hide down over this rivet area in the backpack, and that's going to become a gold area at some point here. Now, so I've talked a little bit about the stilts, and I've talked about the mask. Now, the mask is your, your run-of-the-mill, I don't, you know, I don't really know what the material is called, but you can find it at any material store. It's the slightly see-through stuff. It's black, and it's not it's not see-through in the sense that you you know a person can look through and see you behind it. It's very um very porous material, such that you can see out of it. But because of the fact that your face is so up close to this material, there's no light coming through it from the direction of where your face is. People can't see your face and whatever not. So it's that kind of material put over masks to hide eyes and things like that. And that, I, I use that in pretty much all my costumes. So you, they, you can find a way to have some sort of an eye hole. So you can look out of the world and see what's going on, but people can't see your face underneath all of it, because usually for most sci-fi fantasy stuff, being able to see the human face kind of ruins things, unless you happen to have an open face mask, because those things do actually exist in some very various characters. So pretty much, I took that Nerf rival mask, I then took some steel gauge wire, very thin steel wire, I don't know what gauge it was, gauge is a measure of thickness, I forgot what it was, like 26 gauge, it's something very, very thin. And I made a couple loops around the rival mask, and I used Gorilla Tape. Best stuff for any kind of cosplay. Absolutely best stuff. It just sticks. It sticks to nearly anything and holds anything together. If you need to do emergency repairs to your costume, Gorilla Tape's the way to do it. Or in this case, I built the wire frame and stuck it to the mask with the black Gorilla Tape. <laughs> Guess that works too. And then I then took this material, this kind of see-through material, and I wrapped it around this steel frame and I hot glued it in place. And the end result was that, you know, you got a nice, thorough, dark covering over my face so you couldn't see any human, any human underneath the particular material, and that's what you wanted to get. For the cloak, now making the cloak was a pretty relatively standard process. There's there's plenty of patterns for it. I actually have I followed a book that I got at PenguinCon, uh, Epic Costume Cosplay or whatever. I know I've shown it off before. On um, let me I can go grab it quickly. I know I've shown the book off before on Beyond Kaladesh. Yeah, I'm pumped into something, walk it away. But this particular book, when it comes to any kind of costume work, is actually really good because it's basically an introduction to sewing, which. I don't really have much experience doing, and it gives you all the basic patterns for a whole variety of different types of costumes in here. And pretty much, for the Ghost of Christmas yet to come, you know, he's a grim, my Grim Reaper type character, there's a cloak in here 
whole patterns for a cloak that I was able to pretty much follow and make the cloak and the hood and all that fun stuff with my, you know, right from that book without too much effort. I had to figure out how to attach sleeves to it, which is a little bit of a puzzle. You know, it's trying... Sewing is a is a bit of a just a puzzle in itself because you want to try to attach the things together in such a way to where you can hide the seams and stuff like that. And it's not super intuitive. You've never done it before. So it takes a while to figure out how to get that right. But once I got that all sorted out, it went pretty well. The biggest challenge, though, I found with him is making a cloak that's seven feet long, or technically about six feet long. Most material comes in like 50... 48 to 52 inches wide, so you, it's not most most material is not particularly long enough to actually be able to make this cloak in one piece. Which I was afraid I was going to have to have some seams in the cloak and find a way to not only have to try to hide these seams in the cloak, but also it's just more work. And like I mentioned, I'm not very good with sewing. I don't have a sewing machine. I have to do this all by hand. So that means a lot more time, a lot more fiddling and screwing around. But I found out quilting material, which is generally in a separate section in a fabric store because it's not what you normally would use for making a costume or clothing or whatever. It's for quilts, as the name suggests. It actually comes in sizes that are 108 inches long. So I was able to find a piece that was big enough to make about a six, six and a, six and a half foot long cloak for me um, in one piece. And it looked freaking amazing. I was very, very happy with how it turned out because it, I didn't have to do a lot of complex sewing to attach pieces together. I just had to cut the cloak out, attach my sleeves, and then I had to attach the hood. And all that other stuff was in that book I just showed you there. Uh, Epic Cosplay Costumes by Christy Carmada Good. It's, Christy Good is her name. I'm not, I'm not, maybe Carmada is like an online name she uses. I'm not really sure, actually. <laughs> And then the hood, you know, I, I just wore the cloak over the costume. And then I had my little face mask I was talking about a, a little bit ago. And that was just how I created the whole Grim Reaper type cloak thing for the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Which leaves the real Grim Reaper parts, which were the arms. And that was what I showed you early on in the very beginning here. Let me swap back over to my camera before I start putting some gold highlights on Cypher's backpack here. That was what this thing is right here. <laughs> so this is one of the arms. This is actually the arm that held the scythe. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. I'm really clipping my microphone here. One moment. Let's turn... Oh, no, wrong button. All right, anyway. Um, so I'll talk more about the arms here in just a moment. I'm going back now to Cypher's backpack here. I just mixed a little bit of the gold, which is the greedy gold from the Army Painter series with the Rhinox Hide. And I'm going to go back over these brown areas here. And I'm going to put on some, the, some of the gold to give them a little bit more of a shiny type thing. But that arm I just showed you there, that is a 3D printed thing. So to create the bones, what I wanted to do for the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come is I wanted to create something that was human bone inspired but not necessarily of human origin this makes sense because i i kind of wanted to hint at the fact that maybe this particular ghost in the story is not necessarily human spirit whereas the other three that are in a christmas carol are all generally strongly implied to be of human origin like 
somehow. They all look like humans. They're very clearly humans. I wanted to kind of give the illusion that maybe this ghost of Christmas yet to come was something a little bit different. So those bones there are based on human x-rays. I actually found human x-ray pictures online of a arm. And I went ahead and modeled, them, modeled some 3D models inside Blender off of that x-ray. But... I kind of changed the proportions a little bit. So it, it's kind of like a human arm, but not quite the right size and shape. It's a little bit longer, a little bit narrower. The fingers are a little bit more spindly. Things like that. So it's not exactly a human bone. And then I had to give it a nice little paint job. And I'll talk a, a bit about that in just a moment here. Now I'm applying some of the, the greedy gold directly to these various pieces and I want to be very careful about it. I only want to put on a very small amount. Whoops, that's already a little too much. <laughs> so I'm trying to, you know, give the illusion that this is it's more okay, well whatever. I'm gonna put a lot on. <laughs> but you know I'm trying to give the illusion this is more of kind of a gold that's lost its luster, it's kind of tarnished and worn down because it's quite possible that Cypher is ten thousand years old. We really don't know for sure. But at the very least, his armor is probably 10,000 years old because if Cypher is a different entity than he was, than the, you know, the Cypher from the Horus Heresy, it looks like they probably passed the armor down from Cypher to Cypher. So you want to at least give the illusion that the old armor here is something that's really old. So when it came to painting up the 3D printed arms, I, you know, typical 3D printing, you have those layer lines, which fortunately, for human bones, especially ones that you want to kind of look like old and degraded a little bit, the layer lines and any kind of print defects actually kind of sell the whole effect that it does look like some kind of decrepit, damaged old bone. So that, that, that worked out really good in my favor, the fact that, you know, those little defects and the, and the visual aspects of 3D printing can tell that. But I still went ahead and I used automotive primer. This is the kind of gap filling primer you would get to fill in scratches in your cars and things like that. And um, I, I used that to kind of help fill in the layer lines a little bit in some of the spots. But all in all, I, I started with, I believe it was a gray primer. I think, yeah, it was a gray primer. And then I, I used mostly your typical artistic acrylic paints. So I didn't bother using, you know, actual, you know, miniature paints. They're way too expensive. I bought a $6 tube of off-white acrylic paint from, you know, the local craft store. I cover the bones all in that. But I did use some of the Games Workshop Citadel uh, Seraphin Gray, a Seraphon, a serif, whatever, the, whatever the gray shade is. And that's how I actually got the kind of dirty bone look. So the white you see here is the actual acrylic paints that was from the um, the hobby, the craft store stuff. And then the brown coloring here, that is actually using the game's workshop paints to give the skeleton that particular color. It's The bones are kind of falling apart at this point, but they're all individual pieces, and they're all glued together with a mixture of hot glue and epoxy and little... Oh, what are you? Oh, paper clips. Because I actually used Games Workshop tools to assemble this particular piece of the part of the costume. I would use their vice drill, the little pin pin vice drill, 
is what I would drill into each of the bones. I would stick in some of the paper clips because the Games Workshop pin vise drill is designed to work with paper clips as pins. And then I would apply a mixture of super glue, a little bit of hot glue, and epoxy. Epoxy worked the best to hold the paper clips, in pl paper clips in place and then to eventually glue multiple bones together. One thing I, I realized I just missed here on the backpack is I wanted to paint these little cooling pipes up here at the top also gold. So I'm going to go back and do the same gold process I just did for the other parts of this backpack up here. So painting those bones for the costume wasn't too complex. Um, and, you know, I held on to them two different ways. The right hand, I actually modeled the right hand to be pointing, because, you know, the ghost of Christmas Future, he just points. <laughs> so I had, like, the right, the index finger extended out, and the other, other fingers were kind of curled up. So when I held my arm out, I could point at stuff. It looked really terrifyingly creepy. Um, <laughs> but it's freaking awesome. I'm not going to lie. It was freaking awesome. The hand I keep show, showing you there, that is the left hand. The left hand is the one that I ended up having to hold the scythe. Of course, this is 3D printed bones, and they're not really going to hold the scythe very well. The scythe itself was a PVC pipe that I initially took contact cement, and I used contact cement to crinkle up and glue on... Um, contractor paper. These are those large rolls of brown paper that you can buy at, like, you know, your home improvement stores, and they're used in all sorts of different things when it comes to uh, home improvement work and stuff like that. I, I tend to use them to make uh, pattern, large patterns. It's great for costumes because you can trace out large patterns the size of your entire body if you wanted to. But I glued this stuff on and I crinkled it all up. And then I went over it all with PVA glue. This is in this case I used wood glue, but you know white Elmer's glue. That's all PVA glue. And by coating it this paper in PVA glue, it gave it a very rigid, plasticky coating to it, and it held all the wrinkles and crinkles in place. So it gave it the illusion that it was a very old tree branch sort of because you know it wasn't really a nice smooth piece of wood look it really looked like a very rough bark and then you would go ahead and I painted it with some different shades of brown and black and I weathered it using pretty standard techniques when I say standard weathering techniques I probably should explain what that is in the costume industry your standard weathering is you take black paint whether it be acrylic or lacquer or whatever it really doesn't matter you spread it on whatever you want to weather and then you very quickly wipe a lot of it off using some sort of cloth and what it does is it kind of stains the piece behind in very uneven fashion and it looks like it's very dirty very worn down it tends to get caught in the recesses kind of like how the shade stuff works and it helps really look like whatever the prop is is collecting dirt in a way you would expect it to be collecting dirt and that's what I did to make this scythe look like it was an old piece of a wooden branch. The blade itself was made from several pieces of floor mats, the you know the, the awesome floor mat stuff you use to build armor with. I used that and um, you can kind of you can, you can 
cut it in such a way to give it a little bit of a blade-like edge. And I made it out of two pieces because, you know, those floor mats have a textured side and a smooth side. So you cut them in such a way to where you basically make mirrors of each other. So then the textured sides get glued together and the smooth sides are on the outside. And then you cut it down so that it looks like it has a sharp edge to it. So you could actually theoretically swing it and cut somebody's head off. Um, granted, it's foam and I didn't, you know, you can't actually cut somebody's head off. What I did do in addition is the problem with foam blades like that is they tend to not hold their shape very well. If you saw my construction video when I did the Tau Empire Fire Warrior helmet for cosplay, you would notice that when I built the antenna, that the flex any kind of flexible antenna, much like the actual antenna on the miniatures, had a tendency to break off <laughs> because it was thin, flexible, and just kind of really kind of chintzy, to be honest with you. So what I would do. What I did is I took some aluminum, took some sheet aluminum, and I ran that through the length of the blade. And therefore, this will give the blade a reasonable amount of structure so that it doesn't flex easily when you bump into something. I mean, you can still bend it if you really tried, but just the occasional bumps and you know things you'd get just by carrying around a prop weapon at a convention isn't going to happen. And that's not going to cause, because they're not going to happen, it's not going to cause permanent damage to the weapon where, you know, eventually if you don't have that, the foam kind of bends back and forth and it's going to break eventually. And, you know, it'll kind of take off, it'll damage any coating you've got, the constant flexible things breaks any coating you put on the blade, and you start to see the colors underneath it. But what I then did after I built this blade is I coated it in HVAC tape. This is not, this is the bright silver tape you, you kind of use, I believe you use it if you're actually doing actual work on duct work, not, you know, using duct tape, actual, like, heating and cooling systems, and it's a very bright, reflective tape. And you can use this and smooth it out as you put it on to create the illusion of a bladed weapon. This is a very great way to give the illusion of metal weapons in cosplay when you have a non-metal core underneath it, whatever it may be. And then on top of that, I, I spray-painted that flat gray, I put some silver highlights on it, and I did some weathering, and I get a really cool weathered bladed look for the, the blade of the scythe. Alright, so here in regards to the backpack I'm working on here for Cypher, I'm really liking what I've seen. I'm, I'm looks like I missed just a tiny little bit down here, so let me add just a little bit more gold down here. And I think I might be ready to work on the handle of the sword. And I'll talk a little bit more about my costume for Halloween here and just get back to that in just a moment. Let me just put a little bit, a little more paint right there. That's good enough. You're probably not going to see that too often. It's like, you know, this, this figure is honestly going to end up on my shelf and that's where it's going to sit forever because I'm never actually going to use it in the game. <laughs> but I'm like, I've always wanted Cypher. He's a, it's just a... I love the character, and, you know, it's a, it's a cool miniature, so I'm like, well, let's go ahead and get it and paint it up and see how things go with that. Okay, so let me start planning out what I'm going to do with the sword. So I, I have the little cloth material, the sword painted up. The rest of it, I'm thinking I'll, you know, I'll probably make the cross guard here be gold, and probably the pommel will also be gold. It looks like there's some, probably some gold bands holding some sort of grip on there. It's probably, you know, those leather straps. You could you could kind of assume it's something like that. So let's start there. And then I've got the actual cover of the blade itself. 
Um, down here on the actual Cypher miniature, you have the bottom of the cover of the blade, and it becomes a whole bunch of skulls. I don't see any skulls on the top part here. Anything on the bottom? It doesn't know. There's not really a, a, any visible skulls here in the top part. So what I think I'll do, though, is I probably will still paint that a skull color just to match the skulls. Like, the idea that, you know, that the whole cover of the sword is actually designed to look like it's a color of bone and things like that. I think that'll look pretty cool. So why don't I... Let's start there with that process. So I'm going to start by painting everything kind of below the cross guard here. Just because, to start with the skull color, I'm going to actually start with a basic gray, and I've been using gray all along here this painting session, so that would just be easier. <laughs> so let me get some Dawnstone gray out here. I'm just going to layer down some gray along the part of that sword. Alright, so when it came to my Halloween costume here, I think I've got the weapon down. Oh, I can talk one more thing about the weapon itself. You know, I mentioned that, you know, the 3D printed skeleton hands it had obviously couldn't carry the blade or the scythe. So, like, okay, so how am I going to do that? What I did, if you notice when I kept the few times I jumped to my other camera here, why don't I jump to it one more time? You can actually see there is a plexiglass structure right here built in to this particular hand. This is the one that held the scythe. And I actually drilled three holes in this plexiglass structure into the PVC core of the scythe, and that's how I held it. So there's a whole, that arm has a whole structure to it. It doesn't provide any support to the bones. It's purely there that's connected that I'm holding that structure with my hand to give the scythe some support. And it, it worked reasonably well. I kind of assembled it backwards a little bit, so I had some problems with that. But the idea was pretty sound, and honestly, that plexiglass stuff, you couldn't see that in any of the photos. I imagine if you really got up close and took a picture of it, you'd be able to see it. But from any distance, you honestly couldn't tell the fact that there was clear plexiglass holding the scythe up, and it was not actually being held by the um, skeleton hands, and it looked freaking cool. So the last part of the costume and my interpretation of the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come was that I added some decorations to him that are not actually anywhere in any of the, the versions because I wanted to tie back to the, to the fact that this is this particular costume is going to be viewed out of context. You know, you're not going to... What I mean by that is, you know, you know who the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come is because he's part of a larger production, right? He's part of a theater production, part of a movie. You know who he is because of what you're watching. Whereas this being kind of a standalone character just walking around, he looks just like the Grim Reaper. You wouldn't know exactly for sure that, you know, exactly what I am without some additional context. So what I wanted to go ahead and do with context was the very first ghost from A Christmas Carol is Jacob Marley. This is the former business partner of Ebenezer Scrooge. And he shows up in such a way where he's wrapped in chains. So the idea being the chains kind of symbolize the weight of all the sins that he's committed in life and basically him being a total jerk face, just like Ebenezer Scrooge is. So to kind of link the my character and the way I interpreted him back to The Christmas Carol, I, ha I bought some plastic chain from the local home improvement store 
I painted it up to look like metal, like rusty metal chain, and kind of wrapped that around me. And the chain went down along, kind of around my torso, and then down by my legs. What it was doing is it was kind of strangling and destroying a tombstone of Ebenezer Scrooge. And this kind of ties in to the whole idea that Ebenezer Scrooge was basically being shown in a future where people don't basically shown not the future, but well, what could be the future. People don't care about him with the whole destroyed tombstone. So it's kind of fun to kind of play with that whole idea from A Christmas Carol that the chains that kind of symbolize the, the sins of Ebenezer Scrooge were what were destroying this tombstone that's so pivotal in the scenes of the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And it was actually, the tombstone was built using techniques that you would expect in tabletop wargaming terrain. So it was built from one inch thick extruded polystyrene. This is the green or pink insulation foam. I coated it in PVA glue. And before I coated in PVA glue though, I sat down and I carved out the name of Ebenezer Scrooge using a Dremel tool as well as kind of the, you know, his birth date or what I would guess his birth date to be. There is, there isn't really a for sure consensus on when exactly the tale of uh, Christmas Carol takes place, but it's generally assumed to be 1843 when the story was published. The ghost of Christmas present does make a comment, which would seem to suggest that there's been at least 1800 years, uh, 1800 Christmases, which would put it, you know, 1800 years since the birth of Christ, you would be looking at, you know, 1800s-ish. That's, that's, that's a line that he references the Ghost of Christmas Present references in the story to suggest that it is probably takes place in the 1800s. Um, so, in regards to that, what was I saying? I got a sidetrack side somewhere. Oh, so when it came to the tombstone, I was just talking about the years that he was, you know, born and died. I kind of approximated late 1700s he was born, and then. The date of death, I chose 1846, because the ghost of Christmas yet to come assumes he's showing you very near into the future. You don't know exactly when, but very, very near into the future. And so with it, after the PVA glue gave it a nice coating to the tombstone, allowed me to paint it up like a rock. So I just put different shades of gray on there. I also, before that, I spray painted... The bare extruded polystyrene black with spray paint, which dissolved some of the areas a little bit, make it look like it was rotting. I cut pieces out to make it look like chunks of the tombstone were missing, and you know, cool little effects like that. And then I covered it in some leaves, so I had some fake leaves that I could kind of stick in to the extruded polystyrene and make it look like vines are growing up the tombstones. I used flocking, your typical railroad terrain flocking stuff. And for that, I then um, I kind of glued past down to make it look like ivy was and mold was growing over the tombstone. It looked really cool. And then, of course, the whole illusion of the chains were crushing the tombstone, destroying it to, to kind of buy into that whole thing. Let me go grab one quick color, and I'll finish up all this stuff. So all in all, I think the costume really turned out really cool. I got 
I got maybe a few minutes left here for this stream, so talk about one last aspect of it. And if you want to see what this is, I will try to. Uh, in the YouTube video, I will go ahead and I will put in a image of the costume in the YouTube video, but also in the tabletop battlefield when this episode goes up for the podcast, I, I dump all the stuff out of the audio feeds. I will certainly put on that page a picture of my final costume, so you guys can kind of see, you know, what, all this stuff that I'm describing here. But the last piece I wanted to add, just to give it some flair, really no particular reason why it was there. Just to look kind of cool, I created a 3D printed lantern, and I can, once again I played with the whole chain imagery, and the lantern itself has like chains modeled into it, and then I just 3D printed it up in like seven, wait, sorry, twelve different pieces, <laughs> and it's this huge lantern that I then managed to hide in a whole bunch of batteries as well as an Arduino, and I wrote an interesting little Arduino software program to make a glowing red light look like it's flickering if it's a candle. But it's a pure red LED, so it's not like a natural flame color, but it flickers like a flame color inside this thing, and it just looked awesome. <laughs> it looked very eerie, un unnatural, like a little bit of demonic aspect to it, just because of the whole look of it. Okay, that looks... And then, yeah, and that looks awesome, by the way, here, what I'm working on with my little the sword thing here. So... <laughs> All in all, it was definitely a little bit of a different costume build for me. A lot of fun. I'm, I'm going to bring it out probably at Confusion this year in January. So that's a literary convention, a literary fantasy convention. I guess you can kind of consider a Christmas Carol to be literary fantasy, sort of-ish. I mean, why not? So I'll probably bring it out there and have some fun with it at that convention. <laughs> just, just scare the heck out of people with it because it is kind of terrifying in costume. Um, but that'll probably be it with for it there. But I'll keep it around. It's, it was just too cool of a costume to get rid of. But I think we'll call this part of tonight's painting done. The backpacks come along really good. I think next time I'll have to finish the sword. And then this backpack will probably be complete. So once I'm done with Cypher here, I'm not sure who I want to paint up next. I'm, I'll probably pick whatever the new cool hot miniature from from Games Workshop is at the time. I almost said a different name there. Um, <laughs> I certainly do paint up Kaladashi miniatures all the time, too. I, I'll paint up the new awesome Kaladashi miniature as well. But it's going to be Hydra's Battle Cruiser, in case anyone's wondering. But I'll, I'll pick whatever the cool new Games Workshop miniature is, pick it up, and I'll probably paint that up in the live stream. Starting next year, I'm going to be doing a very long-running series and associated painting miniatures. I want to start working on my next costume. I'm almost certain, um, I might as well go ahead and, and announce it now, because I'm pretty sure I want to do it. I want to make a ghost from StarCraft II. So I want to turn myself into a male ghost, because there's, there's a whole bunch of people do, you know, Nova, who is the female lead, one of the female lead characters in StarCraft. They do her, she's a ghost. Um, ghost is a special forces character for the humans in StarCraft. Um, there's a lot of people who do her cosplay. I want to do the male version, because the generic character in the game is male, She's kind of like the hero character version. So I want to do, because not a lot of people do this particular StarCraft character. It's a, it's a moderately difficult battle armor build. It definitely integrates some elements of what I'm used to with the Tau Fire Warrior with some new things and a whole lot of blinky lights. Because, <laughs> you know, it's science fiction and 
the more awesome the Special Forces soldier you are in science fiction is directly proportional to how many blinking lights you have on your costume. That's what makes sense. But anyway, once again, I am Jason. Thank you for watching this episode of Tabletop Battlefield Live. To find out when I actually go ahead and do these random live streams, your best thing to do is follow me here at twitch.tv forward slash rocker robotics. I do not have a schedule for the random t uh, cipher live paintings or this upcoming costume stuff that I'm going to be starting in January. But Thursdays at 8 p.m. normally, I didn't do one last night because Ryan, Kyle, and I were filming part of the Christmas special for the Tabletop Battlefield. Um, but at 8 p.m. on 8 p.m. Eastern Thursday, which is now GMT minus five at the moment, that is when I do the Caladagia live show, where I work on something related to Legends of Caladagia, which is my tabletop game franchise. So with all that out of the way, once again, thank you for watching, and have a good night.